Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specializing in protective outerwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life, visit roadskin.co.uk. to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode 742, and today, Rich and myself are going to talk about the race that actually happened, although I didn't think it was ever going to happen, the Indian GP. Rich, we went to India, and I'm surprised that it happened. I was shocked that it happened. I was pleasantly surprised that it happened. We did have some visa issues. I think we all knew that that was going to be there, but uh, I don't know how you see this, but I kind of think that the whole ideas of what happened with the visas was a little overblown by some people in the media. I'll let you decide who that may or may not have been. But all in all, I will give it a thumbs up as far as a track. I thought there was some technical challenging things. I didn't remember from when they were when Formula One was last there. I never realized how much downhill it was from the first turn to the second turn up to the third turn cresting there. And I didn't, and I had forgotten about the big banked positive camber turns eight and nine, although the bikes did not use the same one that the Formula One cars used, but it was still the same basic idea. What was your thoughts, Rich? Just first impressions about being in India. Uh, well, I thought it all went off actually very, very well, despite some of the dire um what's the right word kind of warnings that we were getting from some areas of the media I, I, I mean you and I discussed some concerns about some of the photos that emerged a few months ago but you know fair play credit where it's due I thought the facility looked bloody good actually and I like you I couldn't really remember it too well from the Formula One days because that must be pushing 10 years since F1 was there yeah, I think it was 13 was like maybe the last year that they were. Yeah, somewhere around about that, I guess. Uh, but I thought the track was good. I mean, quite challenging, quite technical, as you say, monster back straight, a bit bumpy in places, as we'll talk to uh, about, or sorry, talk about. But yeah, overall, very, very good. I mean, the racing wasn't superb, but that's not necessarily the track's fault. There's some other reasons for that. But yes, overall, I'd, I'd say a solid seven, eight out of 10 for me. Okay, cool. I'll get- I think idea of seven, seven and a half, eight, as far as, you know, hey, it's a new track, something different, not what we've seen before. Uh, I did think they did yeoman's work to make the improvements from the earlier pictures of what we've seen. And hey, a coat of paint here, coat of paint there, little things that, that need to be done there. At least it wasn't like when Formula One was going to South Korea to because they had said that in that track, they came back the next year and there was still like food left in refrigerators and the pit boxes and <laughs> things of that nature. So we didn't have that problem. So I thought, well, we're at least progressing in the right direction. So, you know, other than the normal little thing there, I think uh, it was all pretty good. And I, I know it wasn't an astronomical crowd and perhaps it wouldn't have been reasonable to expect one in year one, but I think the crowd attendance figures weren't, weren't too bad. I mean, they didn't really show too much grandstand action. And I don't know, you know, the old cynic in me always thinks, well, are they just hiding empty 
stands. But you know, I think they had something like a hundred and thirty, hundred and forty thousand or something over the weekend, if if my memory serves me right. So not too bad as as a weekend total. So yeah, I think sixty thousand on race day. Yeah, um, or maybe it wasn't quite as many over the whole weekend, but it wasn't it wasn't shabby by any stretch of the imagination, and certainly not compared to some other places that we go to. So I think overall, uh, the track. Dorna, everybody involved will probably consider it to have been, you know, a, a pretty successful weekend and a very good first stab at, you know, breaking the Indian market because we've never raced there before, obviously. So, and it is a huge market when you talk two wheels. So, huge untapped potential. Yeah, I think this uh, track reminds me a bit of Coda. You have a long straightaway, you have empty seats along those straightaways. We just do it, Coda. Um, there's a lot of people that are there in the paddock, but they're in a very, they're on the main straight. They're in that front part. There's people like me who are on the backside of the circuit where up on the Hills with lawn chairs and things like that. And so as you spread people out across the longer, longer area, bigger area, sorry, um, bigger area, you lose count. Like people don't look like there's many people there because they're just sort of scattered around a little bit. So I feel like it was sort of the same same amount of people that like show up for the race at Coda. Uh, also, I think the track is from what the riders say. And after kind of looking at a lot of the onboards, it's very technical, sort of like Coda is. So, and it's bumpy, sort of like Coda is. So there's, there's yeah. sort of seems to be like a, a fair amount of similarity between these, uh, which maybe explains why the Hondas did good. I don't know, but uh, there was some other things that were were in there as to why the Hondas were good in Moto Three in Moto GP um, that might have been as part of it as well. But I think we really just need to start to get to it, Rich, and we'll start yeah. off with um, get into Moto it. Moto Three as always. We'll start there uh, quickly. A little word about Moto or uh, sorry QP One. Um, Helgardo, Anchu, Ogden, Suzuki, Tobin, Artigas are all in this first session. Helgardo for the last three races cannot get himself to Q Two through the first of it. He's always in this first session here. Anchu was a big surprise to me over why he was there, but it wasn't going to matter what Anchu did at all in this session because he was going to incur a back row start and a long lap penalty for an incident that occurred in practice where he ignored a black flag and medical direction. Now, he crashed coming into the pit entrance. Yeah. I I did not see the crash. And I don't know if no. anybody had seen it. I don't no, think I it didn't. was caught. But he had crashed. It took him a little bit of time to get himself up. And then he proceeded, I think, back to his garage, to which they looked at the bike or whatever. And then he went back out for practice. But he was then black flagged for being back out there, having not gone to the medical center. Now, I'm trying to understand, and I looked, I tried to find the rule book online. I found some things about medical. None of them were what I was looking for. If anybody knows the exact wording of this, please email us, motopod, motopodcast.com. I want to know. But I'm trying to find out what the definition is of when a rider must go to medical. Because there were other people who were on the track later on who were there for what I would call a significant amount of time who then got up and took back off on their bikes without any penalty being incurred yet on you somehow incurred the wrath of everybody do you is there a nuance rich that you know of that i'm missing 
I, I have absolutely no idea, Jim. I, I missed the practice sessions for the most part, just because various things going on last week, work and stuff. So I didn't actually see the session when that happened. And from what I understand, from what you just intimated, I think possibly the incident itself possibly wasn't even caught on camera. So a little bit hard to judge. But yes, I don't really know what that protocol is in terms of a requirement to go and have yourself checked over. I mean, I'm not questioning the fact that that protocol exists. It sounds like a very plausibly good idea to me because riders will naturally, particularly with adrenaline pumping around in their systems, jump straight back on the bike when perhaps they oughtn't to. But as you say, we see people crashing and jumping back on their bikes all the time and not necessarily going passing by the, the clinic. So yeah, bit of an odd one. I would be fascinated and hopefully somebody will uh, illuminate our lack of knowledge on that one. Yeah, enlighten us. Thank you. That's, that's I word. did try to find on the FIM site of the rule that they burned onto you for could not find it in the book um so he did have a fractured finger out of all of this so you know maybe he you know again I, it's it's obviously there's a rule we don't know it i don't know where to look for it in the book someone knows i like to read it for myself so again email us if you know and i'm guessing jim that the long lap was probably for ignore you know not going to see the medical director the back of the row start was probably for the black flag so there were kind of more than one incident that he was getting penalized for with different right. sanctions for each i guess i mean i don't again i don't yeah know for i sure. think he i think the penalty for ignoring the black flag was a back row and i believe not going to medical was a take a long lap so yeah, yeah. uh that was there as well however um in the Q1 session, uh, it's kind of what you'd expect it for people to go through. Anchu would get through with Halgardo, Yamanaka, and Scott Ogden. Uh, Suzuki was interesting. He never completed a full account for timed lap because he kept running wide at, uh, is that out of eight and nine? There's a nine, maybe nine or 10. There's a there's a painted green area that the bikes have to are not allowed to be on and he kept running across it so he never ever did have a timed timed one in fact Jim, i've got a feeling one of the commentators said that he didn't set a a legal time all day on saturday and that presumably would include the, include the morning as well not just q1 so yeah bizarre yeah I, I can't believe he couldn't wrap his head around the limit of the track or whatever else that was going on with him but it seemed so bizarre that you could go all day Saturday and not have an official timed yeah. lap. I mean, I would think that's got to be a record. I would think so. I would think not, not did, one that you want, but no, yeah, it's got to be a record. I would hope. I would hope that someone would have sat him down between sessions and say, "Look, you you need to stay within the limits of the track. You can't do this." I, I don't know. Maybe there were bike problems or extenuating circumstances for some of it that created him from from having a lap but either way it looked like it was going to rain because the clouds had rolled in uh before the second session and oh yes it poured in the inner in the interim in the interim time between the end of qp1 and the beginning of qp2 for moto moto3 they did delay the beginning of q2 for it because it was an absolute deluge there was no way any of us could have ridden in that. Anyone could have ridden in it. It's completely out of there. Um, when we did finally get back 
to being able to do the qualifying. It was a wet session that had been delayed. We learned that Helgardo would not run in Q2. Uh, we also learned that Fanati would not ride because he had a broken foot, and he has been ruled out for Japan as well in a week's mm -hmm. time. And it was, again, it was a wet session that was led by Masia, uh, Bertoli, Sasaki, uh, Ogden, Toba, and then Morera all occupied the top six. So that is how we wind up to go racing on Sunday in what was extremely hot conditions for the race. In fact, the it was so hot and humid that race direction cut laps off of every race that Sunday. Uh, I believe we got cut from 18 to 16 laps because they took yeah, two I think off. So. Oh, yeah. this was at rider discretion. Riders said this is too hot. We can't do this. So they took a couple laps off of the Moto Moto 3 race. So we were going 16 laps. Masia got a great hole shot, uh, followed by Sasaki, Ber Bertoli, and Marrera. Um, Anshu immediately took the long lap penalty instantly. As soon as he was able to go through, he went in, got that done. It was a good long lap. He didn't violate anything in the long lap, so he was there. Uh, on that same lap, 15, Kelso had, with 15 to go, Kelso had a massive high side. He flipped himself off that thing like a rag doll and beat himself up. Uh, Bertoli was gone down at turn one. Helgardo had gone up 10 points. He had got himself to eighth. Everyone was expecting, myself included, expecting Anchu just to blow through the pack. He had that 1.2 kilometer backstretch that you thought for sure he was going to be able to catch up with, but he never seemed to figure out. out. Like he made very little to no progress. Masia basically was out front on the Honda. And we always say Moto 3 is the best race of the entire day. This was not one of the better Moto 3 races you're going to watch because from this moment on, Masia leads the rest of the way home. No one could touch Masia. He was out there. There was nothing that was going on. Uh, halfway through, everything was very spread out. You had Sasaki and Masia at the front. Then there was this another next little party of uh, Colin Vire, Toba, Alonzo, and Helgardo that were there. They were kind of spread out amongst themselves. We saw Suzuki crash, and then um, and his bike. Uh, he crashed with with Scott Ogden. Yes. They became tangled up, um, and Suzuki's. Sorry. Scott kind of high-sided himself or low-sided himself, and Suzuki basically had nowhere to go. So that was very unfortunate for Suzuki on that particular occasion. Mm -hmm. Suzuki's bike ghost rode well the way down to like the next corner. Luckily, the bike didn't go back onto the track and did stay off, which was a good thing. Sasaki lost a lot of pace off of Masia. I thought maybe he had torched off the tires or whatever. But the battle between um, Toba... And uh, Colin Byer was a really good battle that that went back and forth. They really were going tooth and nail with each other. With three to go, Anchu had made his way to 15th, so he at least was going to be in the points. But the Sasaki, Toba, and Vire battle was actually pretty awesome. It was definitely not for the win, but it was to decide who was going to be where on the podium and who was going to be the unfortunate person off the podium. Vire was looking to be his first podium in Moto3 for it. 
But that battle raged on. Now, uh, Sasaki, Toba, and Vire, they swapped places between Vire and Toba at least two or three times, especially at eight and nine. Uh, then the trio would go would go back basically crazy because it looked as though that Vire was trying to help Sasaki, which may not have been the right thing because that put Vire in a bad place. Although he did go by Sasaki at one point, but he kind of fell back. But Vire tried to go around sort of the outside of Sasaki, wound up getting bumped by Sasaki. He fell off, and that pretty much sealed everything that was going to go on. And it was Masa, Toba, Sasaki, Holgardo, Alonzo, and Munoz, your top six from the race. Interesting race. You had to wait for that last lap, but that battle with Colin Vire. I think that shows that Vire is a contender, that the kid has something, and that I uh, believe he's resigned next year for the same ride, I believe. Mm-hmm. So next year, I think Vire's looking for I, I Vire's gonna get a podium here towards the end of the season, maybe one, maybe two. Um, think, the yeah. way the kid rides, he might surprise at Valencia when everything's all said and done mainly just because I think some people are going to be riding for the championship and some people are not. So Vire may sneak one, sneak a win there. But definitely next year, I look for big things out of Vire. I think he's the talent. Um, he's really shown some consistency. Like he just somehow the switch just turned on for the kid. And he's really, really done well with that. He's a rookie, I think, Jim, isn't he, this year in, yes. in Grand Prix? His problem, if anything, because he's a typical Dutch, he's quite tall. So his physical size might become a bit of an issue for him. We know that that gets worse year on year. Look at Onchu, who we talk about a lot. So, but yeah, he's he's a real find, isn't he? And great to have a fast Dutch rider again because you don't get too many of those coming along that often. So it's it's good to have another nationality mixing up the front. But he did get himself in a bit of a pickle on Sunday. Kind of damned if he did, damned if he didn't. Kind of territory in those last few laps, wasn't it? Yeah, I I felt sorry for him because I think I think he started to overthink everything. Oh, crap. I really don't. My teammates running for the world championship. I don't want to interfere with him. I should run rear gunner. Wait a minute. I have a chance to be on the podium. I should do that. No, I could actually be second. And he just I think he got overwhelmed. Well, I think he just went for it. I think the problem was the presence of Kaito Toba, wasn't it? I think if Toba hadn't been in that position, then Via would have just stayed behind Sasaki and just played rear gunner not to, to rob him of any points that he needs in the championship but once toba went by via he kind of had to do something about it didn't he and then it all got a bit gloves off and a bit perhaps a bit over the top i mean sasaki did go pretty wide defending his position on that what penultimate bend uh, and yeah because via was trying to go around the outside of him that's how the collision happened so it was just one of those unfortunately i'd like to have been fly on the wall in the pit garage when uh when the two got back at the same time but hopefully they've all made up it was just one of those unfortunate things that can happen. Yeah, I don't think there was any. I don't think there was any malice to any of it. I no, no, no. no. I just it's racing, and it was racing in a weird spot with a kid who's a rookie at a world championship level against someone who has who has a chance to be a world champion. And the kid was trying to do right by his teammate, but he was also trying to do right by himself, and he got all confused. And you know. There was yeah. red mist. There was clear mist. There was you know, everything was there, and and actually, short into the straw. 
in part Fermi Sasaki did say in the post-race interview that he his front tire was gone with sort of six to eight laps of the race remaining, which is why he dropped back into the via Toba battle in the first place and fell so far behind Masia. And I guess defending as hard as he was in that penultimate turn, he kind of understood the bike, I guess, because he he just run out of front grip at that point. So yeah, just one of those really. Mm, I agree. Um, that really did a big shake up to the point standings here. Holgardo's inability to be on the podium and to be at the front for these past three races has seen Holgardo's lead shrink to take a guess zero. Big fat he zero. is he is level points on Juan Masia. I had Masia written off for this championship about about seven races ago. I just we were like, wow, the Honda isn't any good this year. The KTM is a far better bike to be on or any of the clones of it. Right. Yep. And here, here, Juan Masia, after having gotten his deal to ride moto to next year has literally turned things around. Now there's some theories about why the Hondas were good here in India. Some people were saying that, look, the, the humidity and the heat had very little effect on the Hondas, but it had a much bigger effect on the KTMs where the KTMs weren't able to you exercise their accelerate ex- acceleration advantage that they have again i think the track probably flattered the hondas because there really isn't any stop go places on this track yeah i'll give you turn one and turn three are pretty tight but it's a matter of just getting off of there decent and getting yourself down that long stretch then the flowing section towards the back you really don't it's it reminds me again a little bit of coda my home track no one really passes through the S's. Well, no one's going to start passing from turn roughly turn five all the way till you get packed to 10. That just, there's, there's nowhere you can't pass. Although we did see Vire and all them do make passes in the big positive camber bank turns eight and nine, but they were spectacular passes only because that turn allowed you to have two lines that you could run. And if you had a bike that you could turn, it was definitely easier for you to make it through those sections there. But maybe the humidity was an issue. Maybe the Hondas just didn't have as much of an issue with it. It could be the way their air boxes are configured. All those little things mean a lot, especially on those single cylinder bikes. But either way, Hergardo and Masia are tied for the lead for the points, but Sasaki is a mere one point behind. This is now a very much a three rider battle for the world championship. Helgardo has got a heap ton of pressure on him. He's been the championship leader the whole time. I don't want to say he's expected to win the world championship, but you got to believe that given the lead that he had, he was sort of expected to be that. Although, however, there was a kid a little while ago who rode for the KTM team who had a really big lead, lost that lead in the championship, but did recover to win a championship so let's not put it behind Helgardo that he's not going to straighten himself back out here and get get on there. Alonso, it, it, go ahead. It is a curious slump in form, though, Jim, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it is. It's it's not so much. I mean, Massey's had a, a good few races. It's true, but let's not forget he's chucked it up the road in Silverstone. So it's this is not. This is more. I mean, Helgardo is doing a bit of a banyard at the moment, and he's bringing himself back into the title battle which is not something that you want to be doing, squandering the sort of lead that he had. Now, it must be said that he did recover on Sunday in India to fourth, which was actually a a pretty good recovery job, given where he started on the grid. But 
Yeah, I mean, it's more him dropping back, isn't it? And it's is it pressure? I mean, he's not a rookie. He had his first season last year. So he's got a little bit of experience under his belt. But I, I guess you just get on a run of bad form and stuff just doesn't click, does it, for a bit? So the test for him, like it's going to be for somebody else that we're, we're talking about later, is can he just kind of steady himself, galvanise himself, whatever the word is, and just sort of push on from here? Because this is a crushingly difficult period of the season now with these races one after another and it would be easy to get in a in a rut and he has been in a rut for a while he, he will take some comfort from finishing fourth i expect because that was a good ride under the circumstances yep i think alonzo is not out of it but he is 23 points behind the leader he needs help to get there uh aren't you i hit this penalty here for him ruined his championship i he he is done for getting a championship, he is 28 behind. I don't, I think that's insurmountable. Um, Alonzo has maybe a chance at it and it's slim. I, there's good, hey, anything can happen. I understand that first turn and all three of these guys could be on the ground. Yeah, still, and still quite no a lot of races to go. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that can happen, and the shenanigans normally happens in Moto 3, doesn't it? So, yes, it I wouldn't quite rule on Chew out. Yeah, even no, though I, he is 27 back. But, yeah. It's getting slimmer, right? It's getting Imagine slimmer. where he would be, though, if he hadn't had so many penalties this year because he's lost, you know, a shed load of points. Now, you could say that he's created penalties for himself in most cases, and that would be true. But, you know, a few years ago, when we didn't have this kind of mad penalty giveaway system that we have nowadays he'd probably be leading the championship wouldn't he but somebody can go away and do the analysis on that what is it you said rich about aren't you the his entourage is his problem it's almost like his arrogance of the black flag and his other times that he's been penalized are almost it's almost flagrant arrogance against the sporting against the sport which is interesting um again you that think- was certainly a criticism i had of him a few seasons ago i mean last year at tech three and certainly this year in the io squad I, you know we've said many times how much mature he's been Until but now yeah ignoring black flags is just what's the point of that you know i mean okay you might say he didn't see it but that's not really a an excuse you can get away with now because there's so many boards flashing away at you so many marshals showing you your number and stuff you it's hard to see how you can even contemplate using that as an excuse these days so yeah i mean they're, they're very young these people aren't they so you get a rush of blood to the head or whatever and just think i'm not doing it but he's costing himself masses 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 of points and he won't get another shot in motor three because as we know he's going up next year and he won't come back down again or it's highly unlikely you know i want i wonder if the way he's riding trying to carry maximum corner speed through the whole time because he he's going to lose something because of his weight and his size it causes him to be flirting with the gremlin of track limits uh, i mean it's plausible in the realm uh, there just, but... just to correct you slightly and to defend myself a little bit um I don't think I ever really talked about Onchu's entourage in terms of his his kind of having a bad attitude so much. It's just that the Keenan Sofawoglu kind of camp is just known to be extremely aggressive in the way they ride bikes. You know, there's just no holds barred. And in the past, we you could definitely say that Onchu was very, very guilty of causing collisions that were avoidable just by being over-aggressive. And now as we were talking about John, teaser John on Twitter, 
had made the point that he felt Onchi was entirely to blame for that collision in the last turn at Barcelona a couple of races back. And yeah, I mean, that is the old Onchu coming through that I'm going through. And if you come across my line, we're going to hit each other. It's that kind of attitude. That's the bit that we used to criticise him for a lot more, not so much necessarily the behaviour of people around him. but And he has, as I say, I think matured quite a lot uh, for the better over the last couple of seasons with the sort of uh, stewardship of, you know, Hervé Poncheral in Tech 3 and then obviously Akiyo this year. But yeah, it's a shame to see him. I mean, he's not languishing in fifth place, is he? Because he's only 27 points back. But yeah, I mean, this is going to be quite a stern challenge to get back, all things being equal. Yeah, it, perhaps poor choice of wording on mine to say his arrogance. But there's something about him the past few races that is definitely different. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I look at it as sort of you know mockery of, well, I can do what I want kind of a thing, which I think is arrogant which may or may not be he's his deme- his demeanor has changed a bit when you see him in the box he, he does look like a man who's getting a bit fed up with always getting the finger finger pointed at him but he's the one on track causing people it. to point exactly so you know what you reap is what you sow all right well okay i think that covers pretty much everything that happened in the moto three race shall we move yep. to moto two yes if we must mm-hmm. We must. <laughs> it's the order in which they race them, folks. <laughs> oh, Moto2 qualifying, QP1. Oddly, we had Van de Gerberg, Guevara, Kinnett in the first session of qualifying with Outiger, Arenas in there. Um, that, I thought, was wild that Kinnett and a couple others were in that session. Goes to show Moto2 has depth. But for Kinnett to be there, I was like, ooh, that's sort of the big name that's out of place going on but van de gerberg uh garcia um bender and um uh baltus all got out of that session to go to the second session now remember this was a wet session because of the rain and the deluge that happened so we were in a wet session we got to the second moto gp moto two qp qp2 session i can't speak today sorry guys uh the wet it was still wet, but it was drying. With about six and a half minutes to go, there was a dry light forming. I don't didn't think anybody was going to, you know, no one was going to be able to have time to stop and get on on slicks. If they had a two bike roll and you had a bike with slicks, somebody may have thought about trying it, but they didn't. But the last minutes of this qualifying session was absolutely awesome with what went on. Um, Acosta was leading Dixon. Garcia, Bender, and Arbolino. But Acosta would go wide, which caused him to lose the corner. And then Dixon would nip through, or sorry, I'm sorry. Acosta was on a fast lap because you got into this wet session and it was like whoever was going to be the last person to get across at the end to get one more lap was going to be the person who probably was going to be on pole. Acosta made it with a just time to spare dixon would make it as well because these two were starting to trade top spot acosta had a time going that was going to put him on pole and stretch his advantage however he did lose it going into the last turn ran wide lost his drive and that allowed dixon who rode what could arguably be said almost the perfect lap to Mm -hmm. snatch pole away from pedro acosta way to go brits 
You guys love the ring. Dixon would wind up on pole, which was awesome. Acosta would be in the middle of the front row. Great qualifying for Acosta because he's had a few races here where he's not been on the front row. He's been languishing on that second, third row area. Garcia, using track knowledge from the first session, would be third. And then you had uh, Van de Garborg, Bender, Lopez, and Arbolino there. Arbolino at least getting in to that first two rows where he's had trouble qualifying there as well. Yeah. So that gives us the lowdown of qualifying. When we went into the Moto2 race, again, this race was shortened, was down from the, where did they go? From the 21 laps to 20 laps was the, or 18 was the original distance. I think they went from 20 to 18. I think they, I think they knocked two laps. Yeah, two or three laps came well. off. Yeah. So this one. They started the race, and in the first turn was a huge crash of several riders. Chantra, Alcoba, Vietti, uh, Ramirez, and Hada were all in this crash in the beginning. There was like three bikes that wound up actually on top of each other, which necessitated a red flag because there was no way the corner workers could get enough people out there in time to clear all these bikes off of the track so that they wouldn't be in. And they were in a they were in the impact zone. Of the first turn. So if there was another group of riders that was coming through there, they were going to be in the impact zone. Uh, good call by race direction, I think, to red flag this one, to get the support out there that they needed, to be sure as well, to check on the riders that were involved in it. Vietti got up very slowly from his from the crash. He was a pure victim of circumstance. The back end of his bike was clotted by the other guys that were tumbling through, and he was violently flung from his motorcycle and what I can only describe as a flat propeller being spun around as he then crashed into the ground. I'm sure Vietti didn't really know where he was for a little bit on that one. Um, I think he kind of took the wind out of him literally. Uh, plus with the fast heat and humidity, it'd been tough to get yourself back together again with that one. We wound up understanding that it was definitely Alcoba's fault for this one uh, way too late on the brakes for a for that short run into the first turn, but everyone is sort of trying to make everything happen at the start because when everybody kind of gets into a line, we kind of go stagnant a little bit. Um, you don't see it as much in Moto3. You see it a little more in Moto2 and you see the whole lot in Moto GP. So there was definitely some argy bargy going on at the first bit of it. Um, fair and just for Alcoba to get the blame, Rich. Yeah, I, mean, I find it quite hard to unpick the incident itself because like you said Jim there were so many bikes involved and so much going on it was a little bit hard but he was certainly judged to cause the incident and I mean he's got a bit of a reputation for Moto3 days let alone Moto2 isn't he Jeremy Alcoba so yeah social media was going his usual swivel-eyed bonkers in its condemnation of him but he does need to sort himself out a little bit because you know he took a lot of riders down there and yeah it's all a bit I can't say it's unnecessary because like you say you the first lap and the first couple of turns is where you're going to make a make or break your race, I suppose. But he just needs to calm it down a little bit because he's been all right in Moto2, but he has caused a lot of crashes. And, you know, he'll get... I'm sure the stewards tried to be fair about this, but there's no doubt that certain riders, if they have that reputation, will, will feel, you know, get their collar felt more and perhaps a bit harder than others. So under the circumstances, double long lap, which we'll get to because that didn't actually end well for him anyway, but probably was a fairly light penalty, really. I thought it was only a single lap, long lap penalty. 
Was it a double? I'm pretty, sure got a, I'm pretty sure you got a double, yeah. Really? Okay, all right. I, I, I marked it as a single long lap. Pedal, I might need to just I, double check my notes, but I'm, I think it was because I thought he did the first one okay. And I didn't think he made any of it successfully, one. but... Well, okay. Right, well, <laughs> I'll have to double okay. check now. All right, you, you double check and I'll, I will talk us through the race. So well, the only man who was not happy to see a red flag out of this was Arbolino, who went from seven, from seventh to first in five corners. That was yeah. a heck of a set. That was a heck of a display of riding from Arbolino. It was uh, almost as if you said, "Hey, the real Tony Arbolino has now reappeared in India as well, and he is fighting tooth and nail for this championship." Alcoba, by yes, Rich. Sorry, I've just been reading my notes. So yes. you're right, Jim. It was a long lap penalty, okay. but he so failed to take it in time. So oh. then he had a, and so then he got a second long lap penalty. Okay. That's okay. why he went through twice. Yeah. Okay, that's. Just to correct myself. <laughs> no, you're fine. I, I thought I had incorrectly marked only a single long lap penalty. I had did not note that he had did not take it in time. Well, okay, as the restart would happen, um, Vietti would not make it. Neither would Hada. Now, Chantra was interesting. He had his bike down. It took him a while to get it restarted. Again, you've got that five minutes to get back thing going on. Then what was interesting to me was Chantra chose to take the rest of the lap as opposed to going back in through the pits right away. I don't know whether he felt like he was too far, like he was going to get penalized if he would have gone backwards on track. Um, not sure what his thinking was. Sometimes you do not make clear decisions in an emotional moment such as that. But he was, however, able to get the bike back. His team did a yeoman's work to actually put another fairing back on that bike. Sadly, Chancha would retire with other problems with the bike that maybe perhaps weren't immediately uh, noticed by him on the ride back to the pits, or the team didn't have time and thought maybe perhaps they weren't going to be a problem. Either way, it was a sad end for Chantra, who had showed signs of pace during the weekend. Well, when we got to the restart, we were only going to be 12 laps because we had that's the normal procedure. We had a complete restart. We take three laps off of what was there. So we were at 12 uh, and we started out. So on the re on the second restart, um, Agura, uh, Lowe's, they all had crashes at turn four at the beginning, but Acosta got the lead. Arbolina was next, followed by Garcia, Lopez, and uh, Dixon, who fell back a little bit from his pole position. Uh, Lopez and then Dixon were down at turn four. And my question is, who was actually at fault, Rich, in that one? Because I thought it was a bit wild, a bit crazy, but no further action was taken from my knowledge yeah well I, let's just roll back a little bit on okay. i mean I'm, I'm a great admirer of alonso lopez i'll just make that perfectly clear you might remember when we were sort of talking about the end of last season he was one of my star performers of last season and i had him as a an outside bet as a championship contender this year that okay that hasn't happened but on both of the starts he absolutely threw it late on the brakes up the inside and caused a lot of people to jink out of the way. Now, my attention was kind of taken by him doing that. And that's why I didn't really see what happened with the Alcobra incident the first time around. And he did exactly the same thing on the restart. And then, as you say, fast forward a lap or two, he kind of, he's dicing with Dixon at the end of that long back straight. Dixon went a bit wide. 
did he go wide or did i'm trying to think the angle that the accident happened at it looked as if lopez completely chopped dixon and that's how the contact happened i think when you kind of replayed it and sort of from a different angle yes i thought race direction got this one right actually jim as big of an admirer of jake dixon as i am obviously but it was just two into one doesn't fit and that the the result was just a crash you know it's just just one of those really and i'm actually in that situation where it's so hard to sort of say well yeah it was definitely this one or definitely that one i'm glad that race direction didn't kind of make a bad call with penalizing one person rather than the other or penalizing both of them it was just a racing incident very unfortunate but yeah they were just trying to both occupy the same bit of tarmac at the same time and there's only one outcome from that so i mean did you see it differently because my initial reaction was to shout an expletive at the tv and it was aimed at lopez's direction but on reflection i I think that was wrong of me to do that and it does go to show that you need to see these things from a few different angles really to get a full picture yeah i my thinking was at first was racing incident. Two guys want the same piece of track. Um, but I was, I was scared that race direction was going to be, well, Lopez has been chucking it upside of everybody. He, we need to send him a message. And I thought they were going to give him like a long lap or something like that. But I think the call was correct. Um, both of those guys would remount. They were just low sides basically. So they both were remounting now up front. Acosta just started to put time on everybody. And basically Acosta would ride off into the sunset to win this one. It was the second race of which of the day, which in which there was no passing for the lead. And it was a, not necessarily processional, but it was Acosta's gone um, and whatnot. Now Dixon would fall again a lap later. He would do it at turn 12. Uh, It was very interesting. He clipped the inside curb which vaulted the front end into the air. And it was a good one, two inches off the ground. And when the tire came back to match the pavement, it did not work because there was a set another bump just in the track right after that, that allowed Dixon's front end to completely fold and off the track that, that Jake went. What could have been a great weekend. It seems as though Jake has the highest of highs by winning and then becomes the next weekend is the lowest of lows by crashing himself out, which a lot of that is not necessarily Jake's fault, but he does seem to not nail the start of these weekends. Sometimes the start of these races, I'm sorry, not weekend start of these races. Like other riders do Um, bad things happen in the middle of the pack and you definitely don't want to be there. Hit Dixon seems to be there more often than not, but if he can survive, Yeah. yeah, Jake is formidable. So if there's, if there's any criticism I could throw at any of these guys, and I really can't do that, but it seems like Dixon needs to figure his starts out. He needs to make a slightly better start to be in, to be that top one, two, three, especially when he qualifies on the front row. He needs to stay there. He can't really afford to be pushed out or go backwards. And he's kind of like a lot of riders, you would say over the years in Moto2, and Sam Lowe's is another fine example of this. On a, on a given day, completely unbeatable. Yes. I mean, t- untouchable. But those days are very, very infrequent. Now, Jake's days like that are becoming more frequent, and he's certainly getting much faster in terms of qualification and stuff. But his starts have always been an issue for whatever reason. He is, again, he's one of the bigger, taller riders, so there might be a slight weight kind of disadvantage that he suffers there. Although there's not a scrap of extra on him, 
uh, like with all of these riders. But you know, you look at a Pedro Acosta, and he's you know he he's deadly now because he, he's fast and he's just metronomically consistent as well. And if he you he must have crashed a couple of times this year. Well, I'm struggling to remember one, Brands. but he's he's now at that okay. But he's now at that stage where a bad day for him is a third, isn't it? You know, and that's that is how you win a championship in Moto Two of all classes. Yeah. But I'm kind of interested, Jim, to ask you, what's your take on this thing about the lack of overtaking at the front? You know, the fact that there were two or three guys in each class that just mastered it, but there are big gaps everywhere. Do you think it's just a new track and some people haven't adapted? I mean, look at Aaron Connett, for example. Nowhere all weekend, crashed out of the race, didn't get through to Q2, maybe because he can't learn new tracks or maybe he was ill. I don't know, but I mean, anything's possible in some parts of the world, but... It was like in Moto Three. I thought it was noticeable that the guy, the, virtually the most experienced guy in Moto Three, was the one that adapted and just sailed away at the front. Whereas the the younger, more rookie kind of guys, that they just kind of got split into little groups. But you would have thought it had been a big slipstream in battle with a straight back straight like that, but it just never happened, did it? No, Moto Two was kind of similar. Yeah, um, I I don't have. A good answer uh it's easy to say well we're going to a new track but uh on the flip side of it hey you guys are world level motorcycle racers you should be able to learn a track in a short amount of time the first practice sessions of friday were all lengthened for everybody to have that extra time to become uh available to the track to to um what am i trying to say avail themselves of the track yes become accustomed to the track and find its nuance and whatnot one of the most crucial things you can do when going to a racetrack that you've never raced at is to walk that racetrack i don't mean get your scooter out i don't mean get your bicycle out i mean walk it physically go walk it because you will find the bumps you will find the little things in the track that you need to know before you are ever out there uh i think that one of the reasons that we saw this disparity of no passing had to do with the heat and humidity that these guys were racing in. That will absolutely positively zap your energy. It will zap your muscles. It will zap every part of you. As an interesting note, Acosta actually had the bottle tube, the, the bottle and the feed tube to his helmet and his in the hump on his back of his leathers. Yes. So it means Acosta was taking fluid on during the race or potentially taking fluid on during the race. I did not see anybody else have that particular bottle and uh, setup on, on their on their bikes. Um, I thought that was very interesting that Acosta had it, but nobody else did. Was it because he was able to hydrate some during the race? Potentially. Um, but I do think the heat and humidity play more into this than anything else. I think that it caused people to disrupt their tires on a track that they didn't have enough data on and i think that's where people just start to lose drive or lose front sasaki's front was gone with six to go uh, i think a couple excuse me a couple of other people had tire issues whether they be rears and grip or fronts um, with the dunlaps and whatnot they uh, the dunlap guys made some comment to to simon and i don't remember what it was i didn't write it down for some odd reason but they were they were shocked about how the tires were not giving out 
or mm. something. I don't remember. Yeah. I, I can't remember which way. Well, I think it was they were they weren't giving up. Um, I just think it's a new track, which there is nuance to a track that you don't get. You can practice it all you want, but in a race, there's going to be spots that you find that you can go faster or you can go slower because you're going to see somebody else doing it and you you do it too. But I think it's more just the physical side, just the oppressive heat and humidity, I think caused a lot of people just to like, I can't do this. I need to just ride home and I guess, not try to do anything. I guess an interesting indicator will be next year's race with, you know, second time at the track with a year's data. Will that close the pack up in terms of bike settings and stuff? Oh, then always be because <laughs> we know that little classes are going to be Pirellis. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's a blank sheet of paper again in that respect, isn't it? Next year with a completely they'll different have tire. enough data on the Pirellis to get there. But so. when, before we started chatting, Jim tonight or recording, I should say, you had noticed this thing with on Pedro's bike going down the back straight. Which oh yeah, the if going down the back straight, they were all going. Um, to what would be screen left or riders right and there's a little there's a hump in the straightaway there and uh, right at the right at the like just before that hump man acosta's bike would just get a violent head shake i mean it was 180 miles an hour 190 miles an hour and that thing started to just wiggle itself and i'm like why don't you take a different line why don't you move over a foot or two but acosta never did it never bothered him which was just i thought odd as well but mm. um anyway, but it could have been a bike setup thing that it could be anything it, it was just, just working everywhere else and he was prepared to put up with that kind of negative aspect of it yeah everything about a setup in a motorcycle is a complete and total compromise you're never going to get it 100 percent. and like you said rich i think he just was i'm just going to deal with this i'll loosen my grip push on the bars and i'll ride through <laughs> it it's not a big deal it's it's i know that sounds super counterintuitive but that's what you do when you get a high speed wobble like that you you loosen your grip and you push out on the bars. Mm. It's it solves it. It's like well, that's like the last thing I want to do. And you have to mentally tell yourself that you're going to do it because you just want to hang on for dear life. And it's like mm, no, that's not what you actually do, which is uh, a bit bizarre. Uh, let's finish this guy off uh, with a couple laps to go. The Roberts Garcia battle was really interesting. Roberts was riding one of his better races uh, of the year on the bike. He did eventually get by, but then Garcia got back by again, but then Roberts got back by one last time by turning inside of that bank turn eight, nine area and holding an amazingly tight line was able to get by and secure his spot on the podium. The race finished with Acosta winning by a country mile Arbolino a second, Roberts on the podium in third. I was glad to see him there. Then yeah, Garcia, Gonzalez, and Van de Gerberg. Uh, Skinner was down at the last turn. It was just a simple tuck of the front, and uh, with he then wound in, he wound up uh, uh, being or who else was in that uh, wreck? I I don't have it in my notes. It was because uh, Skinner went down, and then uh, was it? Um, Oh, who was it? I cannot think of who it was, Rich. No, I, must uh, not, I can't it. remember that one. Yeah, I can't remember that one, who it was. It was like one of the Japanese writers, and I can't think of who it was. Anyway, uh, they were, he was a total victim of that crash just because there was no room for that there. So that's the Moto2 race, how it finished off there. Acosta pads his points lead over Arbolino, uh to 39 points. Dixon is now third in the championship. He is 90 points off of the leader. 
and he is 51 behind Arbolino. If Dixon wants any piece of Acosta, he's got to translate poles into victories, and he cannot afford another low finish. Um, he has to stay with Acosta if he wants to be a part of that championship. I don't think third is shabby in this championship. I'm all more power to Dixon for being third. Love that. He's got that ride again for next year. So great things probably next year as well. Yeah. But uh, you think that he's got to capitalize on what he's got when he's got it. No, I mean, things that is looking bleak for Arbolino in second at 37 behind, never mind where Dixon's at in the championship. So, I mean, nobody, you know, God forbid, Acosta has an accident and breaks something or whatever, but that's really Don't the only thing. That's the only thing that could possibly, I think, you know, stop his march towards this title this year. And he'll deserve it. But you know, he has been hands down by a long distance the best rider in Moto Two in terms of consistency this year. So, yeah, that kind of hard to see any other result, really, isn't it? You know, I'm going to fanboy on Acosta here. When he was done and in Park for May. He just sort of looked like that was as fresh as a daisy. He was just not even whipped. It was like, yeah, cool. That was only 12 laps. It was all right. <laughs> Where's the other eight? Yeah. I, I, I'm i not saying Arbolino was, was, was beat down and beat down by the humidity and the heat, right? But there was, you could, there was definitely a different look on his face compared to Acosta's. The only time I've ever seen this you know, kind of a difference. And again, you're going to hate it. Formula One analogy. Schumacher and Malaysia the very first year with Mika Hawken in 99. You know, look at all the heat, the humidity, the depressiveness, blah, 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 blah. Schumacher popped out of that Ferrari like he just done three laps and parked it or something. Yeah. And Hawken was spent on the podium. It was impressive to see Acosta be that way. Again, if Acosta was the only person taking on hydration because he had the water bottle hooked up in his leathers, Fair play, right? Yeah. Which goes yeah. to show the other guys what they need to do if they want to be on that. So, Jim, can uh, I just yes. fanboy, just fanboy for a minute? Please, I've picked this guy out several times this year, but I, I just absolutely outstanding, Sergio Garcia. Yes, this year. I agree. You know, he's a rookie, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, he's showing up his teammate Aaron Canet virtually every weekend now. Yeah, he has been retained in that team. Uh, Garcia, that is for next year. Canet has not, and okay, he didn't quite make the podium, but fourth place. I just thought he was brilliant all weekend, you know. And he's been showing this kind of form as the years gone on, more and more and more. And, and compare and contrast to his old teammate in Moto Three, Ethan Guevara, who we still haven't seen the transition to Moto Two yet, have we? Not to say it won't happen, and I'm sure he will have a much better season next year, but. Of the two, you would have thought Gravel would be the one that would be the, you know, as the reigning Moto3 champion. We expected him to be the one up front. And it's Garcia has done an absolutely brilliant job. I mean, great result for Roberts as well. That was well-deserved because he's had a pretty torrid year by and large. But yeah, no, just shout out to, to Sergio Garcia. You know, he'll be looking forward to next year. Yep, Great call on that one, Rich. I, I agree with you. Um I've always rated Garcia that little bit better than Guevara. And I, I, I that's me. That's how I see them. Uh, again, there is plenty of time for Guevara to figure it out. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and all that. But yes, a shout out to, to, to Garcia for a great ride for that. All right. 
Last race of the day, MotoGP. Well, we, haven't talked about the, we haven't talked about the sprint. I know. Well, we got to qualify first, and then we can talk about the sprint. Then. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's no. not a huge amount to talk about. No, really, not much. But... Uh, so, uh, MotoGP qualifying, if I can find my MotoGP qualifying notes here. Oh, uh, let's see. So, I think one of the big things is we, we had also not only was this race going to happen and we had sort of visa gate which was not really visa gate but people were blowing that out of proportion was the fact that again mark marquez has become the master of social media because here it was again all the rumor was still about him getting on a grassini ducati which again that that seat's open because we know that morbidelli officially said he was going to be on the Premac bike mm -hmm. yeah so Okay, that's Gersini has the right to hire Marquez if they want to, but it's just interesting how Marquez has that power to dominate the social media scene just by random little pictures and thoughts. I mean, there was so much made about the fact that him and his brother walked the track together. Oh, look, they're going to be teammates again, and blah blah blah. You got to give you got to give the guy some credit to the mastery of keeping your name in the mix for things, right? <laughs> So I will, it looks like I it's going to happen though, Jim, doesn't it? Uh, I, I mean, I was absolutely sure it wasn't, but if it's enough sound as if it's going to happen now, we aren't going to know until Motegi because he's going to make an announcement. Now, if you're going to backstab Honda, oof, you are, mm. Mm, you couldn't pick. You are definitely going to rattle some cages. If you announce at Motegi, yeah, I'm leaving. You see, I mean, holy hell. I know there's a lot of theatre around all this, Jim, but you know what? I don't see that there's any merit really no. in terms of having a sit down with the big bosses at HRC because you know for years now Honda have said that they've you know got a new bike coming out or a new this or a new that, and they keep ending up basically in the same position. Albeit they had a much better weekend this weekend, but nothing that they say to Mark Marquez is going to suddenly make him think, oh, actually, no, I will stay because suddenly I believe again. I, I just don't think that's credible. So, and I, although I find some of his behaviour a bit difficult to stomach on occasion, I don't think he's that vindictive to sort of stab them in the back at home, at the home round. So I wouldn't be surprised if we don't hear an announcement at Motegi. I think he's going to make his mind up at Motegi, but I would be sort of betting that he probably makes an announcement at the following race or, or even a bit later in the year. But, you know, the whole, was it on Sunday, the interview that took place with Paolo Ciabatti? And this was the first time we'd heard anybody at Ducati acknowledge the possibility that this could actually happen. And I think that was a, a very significant development when that happened, because up until now, the narrative has been Ducati aren't fussed about Mark Marquez. They don't particularly want him on one of their bikes well that that shifted over the weekend and so i think we can probably read quite a lot into that without being too conspiratorial now yeah i this one he literally could come out in mateghi and say yeah i'm honoring my contract i'm riding next year there's yep. nothing that's there's nothing that says that he's not going to i do think that honda cannot get better until marquez leaves Personal take. The the divorce is going to happen, whether it happens amicably or not, is a different story. That's where this one is. Uh yeah, I mean, 
He could go to Grassini. We know it's possible to win on a Grassini bike. Uh, I give you Bastianini. Um, well, Alex Marquez won a sprint race a few races Alex ago. Alex won on a sprint race too. So it's not improbable that you give him that bike and he has that talent that mm, he's in the front. But there's going to be if they if if he was going to go anywhere, that would be the place because his brother's there. So his brother's used to his shit. So basically, it's not going to cause a problem, right? Mm, yeah, it's not going to. There's not going to be a war of whatever in the paddock. Although I think people are probably underestimating perhaps what Alex Marcos would really feel about Mark turning up in that team because he's going to overshadow him one way or another. He just will because Alex is a much steadier, calmer kind of guy, isn't he? He's, he's very, very fast. Whether he's actually faster or slower than Mark Marquez, you know, it's hard to judge, really. But I, I don't really see that as a particularly win-win situation for Alex Marquez if, if Mark turns up there, because he will definitely hog the limelight, and he probably will be quicker as well. So it's a bit of a lose-lose, I think. Yeah, but then it leaves... But if he does leave, it leaves Honda in a lurch. Because who are they going to put on the bike? The bike has a... I mean, they've obviously paid through the nose to get Zarco and Zarco's input to make the yeah. bike better. Yeah. Well, you could certainly see Zarco moving Sliding up to the over HRC. And wearing, orange and, wearing orange and white. Yes, I yeah. fully see that too. And I, I fully expect that in the likes of Tony Arbolino, certainly Jake Dixon's new Moto2 contracts for next year, there will be a trapdoor clause that says if, an, if a MotoGP bike comes up and you know the team wants one of them, they're free to go. Yep. I wholly expect that to happen as well. I mean, you're dumb not to, right? But, I mean, it just, I don't know. There's something odd here, and I don't mm. know what it is, right? I mean, you can say, I mean, if he goes, he goes. I'm not, well, no one way or the other. I mean, if he goes and he wins the World Championship on Ducati, he further cements his legend, right? Because he's done something that only Lawson, yeah. Valentino, and him have done. Well, win a title on a different bike. I, I think Agostini's in that list somewhere, too. I there's it's few and far between of people who have changed bikes and have won a world another world championship. So if he does great, further cements the legend that the guy's one of the best. Did you mention Stoner? I forgot it. about Stoner, sorry. Yeah. Because he did win on, on the Ducati Grand one. Ducati, on, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so Stoner, Lawson, uh Mark if Marquez can do it there, then you have that. I mean it's it's very elite company. Let's just yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Well, it segues neatly, Jim, into the qualifying, doesn't yes. it? Because the Hondas, the Hondas suddenly exactly. turned up at this race, and there's obviously a reason for this. Yes, let's talk about that just before we go to the race on Sunday, if you will. Mm -hmm. First GP, first QP session, Bender, Alex Marquez, Oliver, and Miller are there. So the KTM's apparently do not like India at all because <laughs> they were like. The two best KTM riders, especially Bender, who's been on fire of late, are nowhere to be found in that one. Uh, it was a bit odd. In fact, Raul Fernandez and Alex Marquez are the two guys who get out of that session. Okay. Weird. Yeah. Very. But <laughs> you're like, okay, fine. So to make matters weirder is if you didn't think you stepped into the Twilight Zone, Marquez, Mark, and Mir are both automatically on the on straight into QP2. Again, what happened to make the Hondas suddenly quick and make Mir suddenly like not try to crash his brains out with the thing? Not sure what was going on there. Um, Alicia Spargaro 
did not get the memo about the new start time for the QP2 session. He was hot. <laughs> he was pissed off. He let everybody in that pit know exactly what he thought about that one. He did pull the Mia Copa. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have yelled, but I did. Well, uh, what do you make of that behavior, though, Jim? I I don't like that sort of thing at all. This one, I really don't get his. I understand his anger, but the way he portrayed that anger was way out of way out of line on this one. And it reflects very badly on him as a person, actually, that kind of petulant, uh, bullying, uh, disrespectful behavior. I mean, I don't remember anybody in the team doing that last year in Barcelona when Aleish ballsed up and lost himself the race by getting the time, getting his timings wrong. So, you know, it does cut both ways. And you do sometimes feel that, well, we know that a lot of these riders turn into the most appalling prima donnas, if, you know, if they're allowed to. Um, you know, they're big egos, they're alphas, you know, we get all of that. But when you really saw that come through in the worst possible way in that moment with Alicia Spargo, and I, I like Alicia Spargo. I mean, people kind of like him because he wears his heart on his sleeve, although he does, he's so quick to start waving his fist at people and shouting and bawling at people that have done nothing but support him and kept his career going when a lot of people would have dropped him. I think was pretty, pretty poor return, really, for the investment they put into him. I don't disagree with you. Now, Alex Marquez would fall at turn three. It didn't appear to be that vicious of a crash, but it was bad enough that he wound up breaking three ribs. Yeah, I, th- I can only surmise, Jim, that he came down on the handlebar. That's what I think happened, too. I thought the same thing, that he yeah. that he came down and clipped the handlebar or partially grazed the handlebar, um, which yeah, that rules him out of Motegi as well. So he's not going to be there. But Bezeki would be on pole, followed by Martin. You, you beat the Martinator at qualifying. You're doing pretty good. And then <laughs> Benyaya, Marini, Mir, and Mark Marquez starting in sixth for the sprint and the race. That was an impressive qualifying by Mark. So we go to the sprint. Everyone was on a medium front and a soft rear. And the sprint started like two hours late as a result of the rain delays and other things that happened along the way, which did give us sort of a picturesque India with the sun setting and all that going on. But Luca Marini botched the first turn massively in there way too deep and clots his teammate and puts them both down. Now, Bezeki would remount and he would provide literally the only excitement to the sprint race before his charge back up through. But uh, Martin would get out in front and there was nobody that was going to catch the Martinator in the sprint race. He was gone. There was really nothing happening. Benyaya would ride home to second. Marquez would finish third to give him his second sprint podium and earn the bronze medal. Bender would ride up up to uh, fourth. Then Bezeki would ride up to fifth. Bezeki was so far behind everybody. It was so fast. He rode past everybody to get to fifth in a 11 lap sprint. And that was, to me was the amazing part. He was in followed home by Quattraro as well. Yeah. I thought if there's anything with two laps to go, Bezeki was sixth and then was fifth. He raced all the way to that point. I was 
flabbergasted that Bozeki had that kind of pace, which made everybody stop and go, whoa. <laughs> he was un- the unlucky that the races had been shortened, actually, or the, that yes. the sprint had, because if he'd had that extra two or three laps, or whatever it would have been. Probably would have won. He, well, he, certainly you'd have seen him on the podium. Definitely, oh, yeah. definitely into fourth. Yep. So that was unlucky for him. Mm, yes. So we get to Sunday. And Simon is talking to some of the guys at like LCR. And it comes out that Honda had a new frame. And everybody was, but they can't run the new frame because the engines don't mount the same way in the frames. Now, I think Nakagami, I think Mir all liked the 2024 frame, if you will, the new frame. They thought it was better in every area. That was a quote from Juan Mir. Marquez apparently doesn't think so. He's like, eh, same problem. Okay, well, then, you know, it's like, I guess you're not there. But now suddenly, why is the Hondas better all of a sudden? So according to what we found out from Simon's interview, with, I think it was a Lucinello, right? LCR? He was talking to? Um, or was he talking to one of the mechanics there? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, no, he definitely did talk to... Try and get this right. Lucio Ciaconello. That's it. Thank you. That's why you're here, because you have names right and I don't. But they were talking about how they had changed where the center of gravity was in the bike. They made it higher. Okay, now wait a minute. This makes a huge amount of sense here when you stop and think about it. Again, story time with Jim. If you flash back to 1983, Spencer wins the world title on a three-cylinder Honda. The next year, the Honda engineers decide to make a V4 because Freddie said, "We're not. there's not enough power in the V3. Okay, fine. They build this V4. What they do is they invert it. They put the gas tank underneath it and the exhaust pipes exhaust pipes over the top. They lowered the center of gravity of the motorcycle. It did not turn with a crap. In fact, Spencer spent most of the year riding the old three-cylinder Honda at most tracks, and the tracks that needed required a bunch of power, they'd roll the four-cylinder out. The reason being is that motorcycles are a weird thing. They're not like a car where you lower the center of gravity and the faster a car will go around a corner. Motorcycles, their center of gravity is above the center line of the axles. And depending on where that center of gravity is, above the center line of the axles, the quicker the bike turns and responds. It also has an ability like where that center of gravity is, whether it's forward or backwards in the motorcycle, makes a big difference too. Now, think about this for a second. You raise the center of gravity. Now the bike changes directions a little bit quicker. In the faster section, the more technical sections, notice that the Hondas did turn quicker. They were able to go through that section almost as fast as the Ducatis. I give you the fact that Marquez was not really losing time to them in those in those sections. Now, if by doing that, and they raise the center of gravity, and they also happen to be where it moves the weight backwards towards the rear, the Michelin rear is now going to be more effective. It's going to want to stay on the track and help with the braking, which is the problem because the front can't handle the braking load that the Bridgestones could. And that's why you don't see the guys with the back ends up in the air that you do a little bit here and there, but not to the immense prevalence see that you would see it in the Bridgestone era, which means now you can use the rear brake to help your corner entry and slow yourself down. Was that what they were missing the whole time? I highly doubt it. There's still other problems associated with it, but for whatever reason, that change seemed to have a world of difference. I'd be very interested to see how this change, because you know they're going to kind of stay with it, how both Mir and Marquez do at Motegi. We haven't really had an opportunity to see much of John Mir on the Honda this year, other than when he's been picking himself up from yet another crash. So, is this the Wananabe effect? Do you think? I'm just throwing it out there. 
I, I, I hadn't picked up on that interview that you alluded to where they were talking about this new frame. And interesting that Mark doesn't particularly care for it, but the others do. Bearing in mind what you just said, that if Mark Marcus leaves, perhaps that is actually a, a net good thing for the longer term for Honda. Anyway, I mean, Joanne Mir, we got to see quite a bit of him this weekend. Now, he did crash out of the sprint, although it was more of a kind of low side thing, I think. But certainly in the main, on, in this main race on Sunday, you could see that it was, you know, the bike is lively, but he looked confident on it. Whereas when we have seen him elsewhere this year, he's looked really tentative because he knew he was going to crash at any moment. Whereas he was really, really pushing that Honda. And there was very little to separate him and Marquez most of the weekend, really. And that does bode well for Honda, I would suggest. But yeah, uh, is it track specific or is it a bike change? I mean, that we will find out a bit more this weekend. And Mategi is, is a completely different track, isn't it? It is straights, heartbreaking, slow corners, accelerate. So it's going to test the front end and any sort of rear stability, rear braking assistance that they might be getting from this new geometry. That should show itself, I guess, at Japan, albeit it is a very, very different track. So, But will we see these constant front enders that the Hondas tend to suffer from? Because, I mean, again, we haven't got to it yet, but Mark kind of dropped back massively after having a one of his famous near crashes in turn one, didn't he? So I think that was considered a full crash, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, it was, um, yeah, um, it was typical Mark Marquez, but uh, great if Honda are making progress because boy, do they need to. Yeah. I'm, I'm, again, I'm wondering if this is Watanabe having had time with the bike and kind of work through setup has now decided. Oh, you're talking about, you're talking about the guy with the clipboard. Yeah, Ken. He's the guy from Suzuki. Ken Kuaachi, I think his name is. Watanabe is a rider. Oh, ouch. Well, there, was a ride, there was a rider called Watanabe. There's probably uh, an sorry, engineer I as well. Was, but... I thought it was Ken Watanabe. My bad. I'm sorry. Ken Kuaachi, I think Kawachi. is his, is his yeah, name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he has Ken. that funny little sort of downturn man. Yes. He, always looks, he always looks upset, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. But uh, hopefully it turned into a bit more of a smile on Sunday. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm like, if, if this is him working through setups... I, I, you know, again, fresh eyes, right? I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, maybe but, this is maybe this was a bit of Suzuki magic coming through. Well, that's uh, what I was thinking. Long last, because we know that HRC are not exactly the first ones to jump at radical solutions, right? But so maybe I, they're I, just in such a hole now that they're they're allowing a bit more freedom, and and if they fail, they fail. But if they succeed, well, okay, let's go this way then. See, that's where I think you hit the nail on the head. We mirror look confident, which means the bike has to be more Suzuki like. Well, certainly he's got feeling again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you if I, again, if you're able to maximize the rear braking and you have stability that's not going everywhere and not everything's done on the front, it's going to be better. Anyway, I again, I don't know. Let's look at Mategi. Let's yeah, let's, let's we'll, we'll keep on talking about this. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll stay here forever. We'll, there. Yeah, uh, we learned Sunday morning that Marini would not race because he did have a fracture in his collarbone. He came down brutally hard on his shoulder, on his left shoulder. I, you know, again. You, airbags are great and they do a lot to help but you can't prevent everything so he was on a plane back to have surgery in europe and so he's out for motegi but will rejoin for um what is after motegi is indonesia indonesia I think, so yeah. he would be back for that one i don't know that who would go onto his bike as a replacement i suspect that bezeki will just run on his own for the mini i assume, I assume this that weekend. he will 
So again, this race was shortened from the 24 laps, I think, to 21 laps. Uh, again, because of the heat or whatever. Martin did get the whole shuffle by Benyaya, Bezeki, uh, Marquez, and Mir. They were all there. Uh, Martin screws up a turn four, and Bezeki and Biagi go, um, yeah, Biagi, not Biagi, Benyaya. I have Biagi <laughs> on the brain from the Aprilia thing. Uh, yeah. They go, they go by at that point. Uh, Bezeki would then go to the front, and that was the last anybody was going to see of Bezeki. Bezeki rode off into the distance, made it look, made everybody else look stupid, and made this one look very easy. If you'd have told me that VR46 was going to win this many races this year, I'd have laughed at you at the beginning of the season. It has been a phenomenal thing that they have been able to do. Again, when Bez gets off the bike at the end of the race, he looks very fresh and comfortable. Meanwhile, everybody else is fighting for everything, all the scraps that are left. Uh, you know, Aleish had some sort of a technical problem. I think the gearbox quit working on him or locked up in gear, maybe locked up in second. They had there. By 10 laps to go, Bezeki had four seconds lead over Martin, Benyaya, Quattraro, who had a very good time. Um, in between this, Marquez had crashed. He basically was trying to save it on the elbow at the first turn. Didn't work, and he just simply stayed underneath of the bike to keep it running so that he could pick it back up and keep going, which he did. Quattraro was looking menacing, I would say. The best we've seen out of Quattraro on the Yamaha, why this track, I, yeah. I cannot mm. ask. I mean, maybe there's some stability because of the turn eight, nine, and some of the flicks. Maybe the bike's just nimble enough that he can keep on the gas and get through those get through those flicks. Benyaya would get by Martin for a little bit, eight and nine, and then promptly Benyaya tossed it away at turn five. Where have we seen this before? This is typical Benyaya end of year form. We're going to toss it away a couple of times and throw away points and sure victories. Really weird that he threw it away like he did, but it gave Quattraro a chance to be on the podium because he was now risen to third. Mir was fifth, or sorry, was fourth, sorry. Then Bender and Zarco. Now, Martin's Leathers opened up with six laps to go. And they were open for about a lap, lap and a half, and then Martin was able to actually zip them back up. That cost him a huge amount of time <clears throat> and put Quattraro literally right on his tail. Now, when that happened, Martin sort of tried to get himself, collect himself, get back together again. Meanwhile, you know, Bezeki's gone. He has done one the race, okay? Quattro then had a ding dong with Martin where he then passed Martin and Martin on the last lap ran wide at turn four, which allowed Quattro to get past. Martin then gathered himself back up, chopped the nose off of Martin going through, I think like five or six. Then they went through the big, the big um, bank turn and Martin would hang on and go to second. So the finishing order the finishing order of that one was, uh, let me see, where did this, how did the order run down here? I know we had Bezeki, Martin, Quattraro, Bender would be fourth, then Mir, then Zarco, Morbidelli, Vinales, Marquez would get back to ninth, and then Raul Fernandez in tenth. But there's more interesting things to happen here. Martin stops in his pit box. Gets off of his bike and was just doused with water. He had completely was completely spent. Like you looked into the eyes of a man who was lost. 
He definitely was not there. These guys are incredibly fit athletes, and Martin was hurting mm-hmm. bad. He did manage to walk himself down to the park for May. He was drinking more water. And then he next thing you know, he's sitting down again, and the medical team is looking at him. Apparently, he had suffered dehydration, which if you've ever been severely dehydrated, your mind doesn't function, your body doesn't want to work right, and you're having fits to try to do anything, let alone race a 300-horsepower motorcycle at over 200 miles an hour around a very complicated track with Quartararo right behind you trying to steal a podium position away from you, okay? All credit to you, Martin, for being balls out. But one of the things that he did that I thought was really interesting was his chugging of his Red Bull at the end of the race. You're dehydrated, sucking down a caffeine drink, which will do nothing more than dehydrate you more when you should have basically been sucking down water. Now, I did ask my wife, who is a doctor, if that was a smart thing to do to drink caffeine drinks. She said, no, caffeine will dehydrate you even more than you are. And given the amount of caffeine that's in a Red Bull, that was probably not the right thing to actually do. In fact, it was so bad that Martin didn't was relieved of all of his post-podium duties and was able to seek the medical treatment he need to be rehydrated. Be interesting to see how he is in five days' time when they get to Motegi. But that is how things ended up in a very bizarre, hot, humid India, Rich. <laughs> yeah. Weird ending uh, to a very strange race, right? It was an odd race, yeah. It wasn't a particularly exciting race in the sense that there wasn't much racing and overtaking going on. And we can park, you know, discussion as to aero and one thing and another being a part, part of that problem, not the entirety of the problem. But, I mean, the big talking point of the race was Banyard crashing out of second place, chasing a guy he had no hope of catching. I mean, that is a terrible lapse of judgment, really, on his part and, and is kind of indicative of what you tend to see from Banyard from time to time. Now, I was listening to somebody else a day or two ago that was commenting on the race weekend, and there was a lot, of, apparently, and obviously I wasn't there, there was a lot of talk and a lot of worry in the Works Ducati squad on the Saturday night about Bezeki's pace in the sprint. Because although he only finished, what did he end up, Jim? Fifth. I oh, think he was fifth. His lap times had everybody worried. And Now, whether that got into some of the riders' heads a little bit, um, Banyaya, we sort of always worry that he can be a little bit apt to these sort of lapses of concentration or whatever. And this is, this is not a kind of... A, a criticism as such because as you just said they're racing <laughs> at this place of all places in that heat that humidity on those bikes it's a momentary thing and you're down so it can be really criticizing no but he does do this quite often and i mean he should have just banked the 20 points rather than trying to chase after Bezeki, who he just was not going to count you know, catch but maybe those lap times have just got into his head a little bit and i don't know it's hard to know really why that crash happened under the circumstances because he's now, as we're going to talk about in a minute, in a bit of jeopardy in the points situation if he doesn't get himself straightened out fairly quickly. And obviously we're going straight to the the Japanese Grand Prix a few days later. So he doesn't have a lot of time to sort of pause for thought. He's not going to get time to go home and sit by the pool and just, you know, chill out for a bit. He'll be on media duties already, I expect. So they don't get any rest um, on the back of a draining weekend, plus a crash that he shouldn't have had, we need to watch what Banyai gets up to this weekend. Because he, if he 
If he comes out and has a solid weekend, even if he doesn't win, but if he gets a decent podium in both of the races, that'll be job done for Banyard. Because at this point, he just needs to steady the hell down. Otherwise, you could see a, you know, could we? Could this be the first year that a, a non-works bike wins? I mean, okay, is it? But it is a works well, bike. It is. It, a it is a works bike, but it's a privateer team, so that's the distinction here. But. I mean, I think it's worth saying at this point that all of these bikes are so close and so good that I think the days where you'd say, well, a, yeah, a customer bike could never win a championship. They're not they're not customer bikes anymore, are they? I mean, just look at Bezeki. I mean, that thing's a year, you know, that's last year's bike. No, it's the best one out there now. So, yeah, so the Banyard thing was kind of huge, really. Um, yeah, it hurt him because in the points, his lead shifts to 13. 13 yeah. points ahead of Martin. Not comfortable. No, not by Longstreet's imagination. And don't forget, Jim, because Banyaya is the champion and he's the works rider, whereas the other two, I mean, Bezeki's not out of this either yet, but, but he is a fair bit further back. But because the other two are not on the works bike, let's say, the red bikes, there's much, much less pressure on them because nobody expects them to win because it would be unprecedented if one of them did. So all of the pressure is on Banyaya. It is. So it's an uncomfortable place for him to be. But, I, I, you know, I have only a certain amount of sympathy because he's getting paid quite well to do this job. So, but, yeah, uh, going to be interesting to see how he copes with the pressures of it all this weekend. Yep. Zeki's 44 points behind in third. Bender's 100, behind, 100 points behind in fourth. It's a three-horse race, and uh, Benyaya better get it right, better right the ship and right it very quickly, because if he doesn't, Martin will win this championship. Which, Jim, last yes. year in Japan, when Banyaya and Quattrara were kind of locked in a battle for the championship, one of them did a stupid last lap or penultimate lap dive up the inside and went down. Now, was that Quattrara or was that Banyaya? I've been trying to remember all day. Because Mategi is one of those unfortunate tracks that invites a late lunge because it's all about the brakes there. Especially on that downhill before they go back in underneath the oval. Under the bridge, yeah. yeah. Uh, we need to, I'll have to refresh my memory I on that. I think the... it was Quattraro that boggled there because Benyaya then crashed at Sepang in turn one because right. he was down there. I know he was on the ground in 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 Malaysia a week later. So it was sort of that tit for tat. Like mm. I screwed up, now you screwed up thing. I I believe. I was trying to remember if Banyard goes into this weekend having crashed there needlessly last year, but I so maybe it wasn't Banyard then. I need to go maybe back. Maybe it and was Banyard. But... I do kind of now did he like run off of the chicane at the end or make some, some weird Somebody lunch tweet there? tweet us with somebody the answer us, on this yeah. one for God's sake, put us out of our misery. <laughs> right now, somebody's at, right now somebody's screaming at their podcast device, going, "No, you idiots! It was the fifty-one-year-old uh, memory is failing yes, again. <laughs> it's failing again." Yes. Oh, so that is how this crazy weekend in India left. We've got a short four days now for everybody to reconvene in Japan, and we shall see. Have all these questions will soon be answered. One, I think. Question one: Is Martin fully healthy, rehydrated, refluided? And ready to go again. Two, yeah. is Benyaya going to put this behind him or is he going to let it linger to have another silly problem again? Four, are the Hondas going to run well again or is this an anomaly just because of the track 
that they were at. Um, a lot to think about there. Uh, so I'm all for this. I can't wait. I, I, and I don't think we should, actually, you just saying that, Jim, I don't think we should underestimate how much pressure is on Martin physically on this one because he was in quite bad shape, wasn't he, from from what we saw. And, and that will take a bit of getting over because, I mean, that is physically very, very draining to be in that position, I'm sure. And again, because it's such a quick turnaround to get to Japan and they'll be on duty, I mean, maybe he'll be relieved of some of the media stuff to help him out but uh, yeah it's unfortunate timing for him he has to go straight to a, a back-to-back race weekend so I'm not saying that's a let off for Banyaya because he's got his own issues to deal with as we've just been talking about but it's an open door for Bezeki some of this stuff if if Martin and or Banyaya have a bit of an off weekend for one reason or another Bezeki on this sort of form is could could close that gap down quite quickly agreed what do you say it was 44 points I mean it's quite uh, a big yes Bezeki's 44 gap. behind. But, you Plus you got sprint races and stuff in there. Exactly, a 37 points crazy can happen. in a weekend to win uh, in MotoGP now with the sprint and the main race. So, you know, if, if Banyar or Martin have an off weekend or crash in one of the races or both, heaven forbid, then, you know, Bezeki's right back in it all of a sudden. So there's a long way to go in this championship. And it didn't look that way four or five races ago. I mean, Banyar was miles out front. So he's squandered a big lead. Yep, I agree. Um, I think Martin is more than likely to do another double somewhere here in these next set of races. I, um, the, the last two, uh, Qatar under the lights and then Valencia are going to be interesting just because of the sprint race being in it, yeah. right? And the extra yeah. 12 points to win there. It's going to, the mathematics are, are, are changing. The, I just got to say the biggest the biggest disaster of the weekend, Jim, was my fantasy league because I forgot to take Danny Pedrosa out after Mazzano. <laughs> I got completely caught out by the time zone. By the time I realised, I couldn't change it. <laughs> yeah, what is it, the difference is two and a half hours ahead for Japan. They're two and a half hours ahead of India, which is not too bad for jet lag. Mm. A couple hours is not horrible. For these guys but they're the masters of getting over jet lag and and everything else so anyway with that we will say our goodbyes i'm going to remind you all to ride safe see you in a week